This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show, and we welcome back to the show State Representative Tammy Govea, who is the State Representative from the 14th Middlesex District. That's Acton, Chelmsford, Concord, and Carlisle. She is a candidate for the Democratic nomination for lieutenant governor, along with Salem Mayor Kim Driscoll and State Senator Eric Lesser. Tammy Gavea was with us very early on in the campaign, and we are thrilled to have her back with us on the show today. So, Representative, I, I, I don't mean to make you unhappy early in the morning, but notwithstanding that you have been working as a candidate for lieutenant governor for months and... Uh, and did well at the state yeah. democratic state democratic <laughs> well, yeah. state democratic convention, and are on the ballot. One of the three candidates who remain. Um, many people, I think, not through anyone's fault, but because of how news has just been an avalanche of events uh, in the last few months, have not really been paying a lot of attention to the race for the Democratic nomination for lieutenant governor. So I'm sorry about that because I know you and the other candidates are working incredibly hard to get out your message, to be known, to have name recognition, to talk about the issues. So with that as an introduction and saying a lot of our listeners probably don't really know you or remember our first conversation, why don't you take two minutes, give us the stump speech, tell us why you want to be lieutenant governor. Sure. And first and foremost, I want to thank you for having us back again. And, um, you know, that doesn't make me sad. It's the reality uh, that a lot of people don't pay attention until later in the summer um, for races all across the board. And it's not just this year. It ha happens every every single election cycle. Um, I am State Representative Dr. Tammy Govea. I'm running for Lieutenant Governor, have been in this race for over a year um, because I believe that we need a different type of Lieutenant Governor. We are facing such complex problems. Uh, we need someone who can be uh, an, an, a fantastic uh, complement to the skills that uh, Attorney General Maura Healy brings, since it is very, very likely that she will be the Democratic nominee with State Senator Sonia Chang Diaz taking a step back from her race for governor. And I have those skill sets. I'm a doctor of public health. I've been a social work for, worker for 25 years. And I can get to work from day one, uh, bringing together collective voices, uh, different people to the table to identify the root causes of what's driving the complex problems that we're facing from the housing crisis and mental health uh, to COVID-19. You know, we're anticipating another surge given the latest variant and also um, the childcare crisis. And of course, climate change is uh, always on people's minds as well. I have a track record of working on these issues uh, over the course of my 25 year career. And I can get to work on day one, being a different type of Lieutenant Governor leading in those spaces. I'd like to know more about that because uh, Eric Lesser, uh, State Senator Eric Lesser, one of your competitors uh, will and does talk about his experience in the legislature. And uh, Salem Mayor Kim Driscoll talks about working with the state government as a mayor and what that has taught her. You, you bring a different skill set. You've been a representative. You ran first in 2018. You've been a social worker most of your uh, professional career. You got a doctorate uh, from public health uh, from Boston University, I think, during the pandemic. You bring a different skill set. So why is this a good skill set for a lieutenant governor? Yeah, again, you know, given the complexity of the issues that we're facing, um, and knowing that these are some big issues that we want to tackle that we haven't fully tackled, like the housing crisis, 
we can't run around saying that we need a housing production plan and that we can build our way out of the housing crisis that we're facing. I've been in this race for over a year and have been hearing and listening to local leaders and residents about what seems to be driving the housing crisis. And it's not just about a lack of supply. In some parts of our state, there's plenty of supply. It's locked in a short-term rental or investment property owned by people who don't even live here, uh, not even in the state, but don't even live here in the country. So in addition to building housing, which we need to do and making sure that it's affordable and that it supports our diverse uh, workforce, uh, we also need to make sure um, that we are addressing legislatively some of the issues that are also driving uh, the housing crisis. The same thing with mental health. You know, we've gone years and years, if not decades, underinvesting in our mental health care system and in our child care system. Given my background as a social worker for 25 years and my experience and expertise as a doctor of public health, I can jump in from day one. That's critical at the moment that we are in right now, having that kind of content expertise, knowing who to go to, to bring folks in, to address, identify those root causes of what's driving the problems, and then finding the solutions that are going to actually solve the problem, given the kinds of investments that some of these complex issues are going to require. We wanna make sure that we are hitting the mark and hitting the mark quickly uh, and not wasting any time, effort, talent, or uh, resources as we make those investment decisions. In that regard, I think we still have an opioid and fentanyl crisis in Massachusetts, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are of what the state government should be doing, what the governor's, the next governor, should be doing, what the lieutenant governor should be doing, what the legislature should be doing about this. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I have worked in the space of opioid prevention for over 20 years. I formed the Lowell Roundtable on Substance Abuse Prevention back in 2007, so pretty early on getting uh, resources for the city. It's that kind of thing that we need to continue to be supporting our local communities to be able to form those coalitions to bring people at the local level to identify what's the route driving it at the in their municipality or in their town or their city. Uh, when I worked on my doctoral research, I did this on opioid policies. I even then crisscrossed the state. What I heard over and over and over again, uh, particularly from the folks I interviewed in the western part of the state, is that part of what the big challenge is, is the lack of transportation, the lack of accessible resources, the lack of you know, community drop-in centers. There are phenomenal organizations like Tapestry that are providing uh, tremendous support and resources and outreach. But there's more resources that the state and the legislature and the corner office must invest in to um, support our municipal leaders, as well as our, uh, you know, nonprofit organizations to be able to do the work that they're ready to do. They just need more support and more resources to do that. And do you have a position on safe injection sites? Yeah, I was a co-filer of the uh, safe consumption site uh, legislation last session. Um, it's something that I've been supporting uh, for years. I think it's really important because the fact remains consumption is already happening. We want to make sure that it's safer um, so that people have access to health care. They have access to resources for their mental health needs, um, access to food and housing, and that can and will happen in safe consumption uh, settings. It's not happening right now because people are so dispersed and where they're using their substances. Um, and it also makes sure that people get access to fentanyl test strips. It's a piece of legislation that I passed 
uh, during the last three years is getting fentanyl test strips out to folks all across the Commonwealth. Um, it's an effective harm reduction strategy. We need to bring more harm reduction into the ways that we are addressing uh, substance use disorder and the opioid crisis. Is there more legislation that's needed or are we set for laws and we, this is a question of implementation of policies and utilization of funding and resources that we have? Yeah, we have not passed the safe consumption uh, site legislation at the state level yet. We are legally cleared to do so with the circuit court um, two years ago, I think it was, ruling that these do not fly in the face of federal laws. So we are cleared in that way. It's just about a, a matter of having the political will to get it done through the legislature and the corner office. Representative Gouveia, you just said something that I think comes very close to the heart of people in Western Massachusetts, which is the phrase, Western Massachusetts, which feels, and I think this is fair to say, generally less appreciated and more ignored than other uh, sections of the state. And I'm wondering if you could talk to us for a minute or two about how you see bringing Western Massachusetts back into the fold or making it part of the conversation on Beacon Hill. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I first jumped into this race, the first place I went to was Western Mass. I visited uh, three of the counties. I didn't quite get to Franklin County on my first time out there, but have been since since then. We have trips planned again as well. Um, and just have stayed in constant uh, touch with folks, uh, municipal leaders, especially grassroots leaders and residents about what the issues are that, that folks are continuing to face. And uh, you know, having small group meetings with folks as well to understand um, different issues, ones that don't necessarily rise to the top of uh, the things that I've already mentioned in terms of housing and mental health and childcare. But, you know, listening to parents uh, in terms of their struggles with getting access to transportation to get their grandchild to their appointments for, you know, leukemia treatments or learning that there are parents who are really struggling with their children uh, who have me uh, complex medical uh, care needs and are not getting the kind of nursing services that they need. So I think, you know, I've already demonstrated a commitment to being present in Western Mass and understanding what the issues are and how they are how they manifest differently and sometimes similarly to other parts of the state as well. You know, I was really struck by when I first went to North Adams about a year ago in Williamstown, the thing I heard was, you know, homelessness is manifesting in people couch surfing and doubling and tripling up. It's the same exact thing that I heard from folks in Chelsea. Two completely different types of uh, regions and demographics, but the issues are manifesting in similar ways the solutions to those problems are going to be found, they're going to be different, they're going to need to be targeted. So that's the kind of thing, that's my mindset, that's my approach to thinking about the problems. And just before COVID hit, I formed a working group within the Progressive Caucus focused on transportation. And the big thing that we I made sure was on the table was that we were addressing geographic equity. So making investments in our RTAs, which I know a lot of people rely on, uh, the, the transit out, out in western part of the state, making sure that we are moving forward with east-west rail or west-east rail, depending on how you prefer to call it, uh, making sure that we are investing uh, in the western part of our state in terms of jobs as well. You know, I don't believe that the best thing to do is to try to get everybody into Boston or greater Boston area for jobs. I think we need to find ways to use the infrastructure that already exists, uh, some, some, you know, beautiful infrastructure. I think about what Mayor LaChapelle has done in 
East Hampton with some of the uh, repurposing of the mill buildings with mixed use. I think there's a need to, for us to make investments like that. And Western Mass has tremendous opportunity in that space with you know, Chicopee and Holyoke and Springfield and some of the infrastructure that exists there in Northampton as well. Um, and I think that one of the things that I'm really committed to is having a staff person who is in Western Mass, who is directly part of uh, the corner office staff, um, but who's situated in Western Mass to give voice on a regular basis to what the issues are uh, as they're emerging. Because these are, you know, this is a moment in time. We understand what the issues are now that are facing us. In six months or 12 months, that could be a different set of top issues that we need to pay attention to. We're going to take a quick break. We are speaking with State Representative Tammy Govea. She is a candidate for the Democratic nomination for lieutenant governor. When I come back, I'm going to ask a question to follow up on this east-west, west-east rail, see how important it is to Representative Govea. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Every day, financial ads claiming to be different from the competition. Are they? I'm Francis Rayum, the money doctor, and I'm about to make a bold statement. I believe the thing to focus on isn't their uniqueness, it's yours. No one has the same financial situation or needs as you, and no one can help us help you better than you. But the truth is, when it comes to managing money, most of us are not as successful as we'd like to be. No matter how focused we are, it's almost impossible to separate emotion, and being in a relationship can further compound the issue. That's why I developed Hug Your Money. Financial coaching coupled with online software and tools to empower you to manage money wisely. We guide you every step of the way to resolve immediate issues and plan for your financial future with modeling scenarios. So whether it's debt, budget, retirement planning, or a financial crisis, having a Hug Coach in your corner is like having a new best financial friend. Hug Your Money is as unique as you are. In fact, it's patented. Visit HugYourMoney.com. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. But I don't see wine here, Ringo. What do you got? Well, who am I? You're the spirit guy. Uh-oh. So you're taking me down the road of spirit. So our next whiskey is going back to traditions here. Uh, this is Port Eskeg, eight-year-old single malt scotch. So it's actual scotch? This is Scotland scotch, mm. scotchy scotch scotch. This is an Isla single malt, peatier in style. This one does not suffer supply chain issues because you wouldn't be giving it to us if it did, right? Correct. It says Port Eskeg, which is a location, but it's an independent bottler that gives them their whiskey. Because there's so many different approaches on whiskey, I really try and hit everything with a very open mind as far as what can be good. This one got 95 points at the, the Ultimate Spirits Challenge. I think this is very good. And how much is this single mall? This is $66.99, so it's kind of right in that low to mid-entry level price point. Find your favorite whiskey and your next favorite whiskey at State Street. This Monday at the Shea, The Crossword Show with Zach Sherwin. Zach Sherwin, from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and Epic Rap Battles of History, bringing his incredible wordplay to a live crossword puzzle on stage at the Shea. A panel of guest comedians will solve this actual crossword puzzle while Zach Sherwin takes us down a rabbit hole of comedy, music, trivia, and wordplay. No crossword expertise needed. The Crossword Show with Zach Sherwin. With special guest problem solvers, Smith College's Dr. Jennifer Malkowski, the founder of Smith's Video Game Research Lab, Comedy as a Weapon comedian Kim DeShields, and me, Monty Belmonte. The Crossword time. Show with Zach Still Sherwin. Monday night, 7 o'clock, Shea Theater, Turner's Falls. Up, 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 up. 
Alexander the Great. WHMP. Oh. My bad. Thank you. <laughs> Extra credit for Monty Belmonte this morning. We are speaking indeed with Tammy, uh, Tammy Gavea, who is a state representative from the 14th Middlesex District, candidate for the Democratic nomination for lieutenant governor. Uh, we were talking during the break about, well, songs about Tammy, and hence, <laughs> hence that intro I played Monty. Tammy Terrell as the outro music. And would you like to uh, disclose what was disclosed in private during the break? Oh, sure. I was named after uh, the Debbie Reynolds song, Tammy's in Love, by my parents. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to cue that one up. Oh, goodness. Well, I asked you about, and it teased before the break, the question of West East, East West Rail. Um, uh, you said that the state economic development can't be based on everyone trying to get to Boston to work, but uh, West East Rail, East West Rail is in fact premised uh, significantly on the question of or the issue of whether people can be brought into Boston to to work. So I'm wondering if you could square that circle for us and tell us whether uh, West East Rail would in fact be a priority for you uh, if you are elected lieutenant governor. Absolutely. It still would be a priority. I think there's a tremendous need to uh, really truly connect our state. Um, I've supported transportation uh, investments, uh, you know, since I've been serving in the legislature of that kind of ilk. Um, I ran on, an on a platform of investing in our transportation system, making it greener, more accessible, more reliable. I'd see tremendous economic development opportunity by making sure that we are, um, you know, getting east-west, west-east rail done. Um, but I also know as a single parent how incredibly difficult it is to think about having a job uh, in the city of Boston when you live 45 minutes to an hour away. Sometimes it just logistically doesn't work. And sometimes people don't want to go into the city. Sometimes those are not the kind of job opportunities people want to have. So I think there's a need to also, in addition to East-West Rail, make investments along the trail, uh, the, the train route um, for job opportunities also. Um, there just simply is not, um, you know, always enough economic opportunity that everybody can avail themselves of in Boston and the greater Boston area. We need to be looking at other parts of our state because that is the way to, I believe, economically and environmentally sustain our state long term. Are there federal funds that are available still to be designated for expenditure uh, in the coming years that the legislature and the governor have will have influence over? I believe so. And I also think this is another thing that I would like to do as lieutenant governor is work more directly with our federal delegation. Um, you know, our federal delegation also has a role in how we 
uh, get some dollars and make investments in our RTAs as well. Um, so it's it's about a lot of uh, opportunity to access transportation dollars that can come from the federal level into our state. And again, moving towards you know building more lines for sure, building more bus routes for sure, but also greening the fleets uh, that already exist and making sure that new fleets that come on, whether you're talking about uh, light rail or or commuter rail or talking about buses that they are uh, green and and helping us achieve our state's climate goals. In that regard, and one last question on West East Trail: do, do you do you see this as reality? I mean, I know there is a, uh, uh, a budget item there is, has been uh, bonding approved by the state legislature for the initial stage of. West, East, East, West Rail. And I'm wondering uh, if you see this as kind of a pie in the sky idea or whether you say 10 years from now, five years from now, I don't know how many years from now, we are going to have a version of this in Massachusetts. What's your view? I think several years from now, we will start to see us um, putting shovels in the ground for this. I, I don't think it's pie in the sky. I think it's going to take a lot of collaboration, a lot of uh, you know, advocacy, a lot of uh, making sure that we are paying attention to all of the opportunities to secure the dollars. There's, of course, a lot of negotiating along the route that needs to happen um, with properties that are along the route. Uh, but it's the kind of thing that we've seen done with converting, you know, old trail lines to to bike to bike lanes and pedestrian lanes. Those took years. Uh, those seem like pie in the sky at the beginning, but they're done. And now they're um, you know, helping uh, helping us achieve our state's climate goals and also helping provide other uh, opportunities for people to get from point A to point B and recreation. Let me ask you this. We just touched on the budget. I'm wondering if there are major budget issues that are part of your campaign, part of your platform. Um, yeah, I mean, so we have the budget that's in conference committee, so those things are already there. But uh, this week, we in the House are continuing to take up the economic development package. Uh, yesterday, I pushed for an amendment that would make sure that our lowest income earners were also part of the uh, ec energy and economic relief uh, rebate program um, that, didn't, that did not pass, but there's an opportunity on the Senate side for, for that to also be taken up. Uh, making sure that we are investing in transitioning our housing to um, to achieve our climate goals, you know, moving towards net zero, allowing, uh, you know, providing incentives and uh, op economic opportunities for uh, lower income and moderate income families to be able to access funds so that if they want to install a heat pump or if they uh, want to install solar panels, that they have an opportunity to access that fund. So I filed a 250 million uh, major retrofit uh, funds that we will be taking up today in the house. Um, you know, those kinds of investments are, are help us achieve uh, greater economic growth. They support green jobs and they also help families uh, have energy independence right in their own home by being able to install uh, these kind of components. And it shouldn't be only those who can afford to install these things that have access. So that's why I filed that major retrofit um, fund. Representative Gouvet, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you the political question, which is in part, uh, what is the state of the race for the lieutenant governor? Uh, your opponents, of course, are Eric Lesser uh, and Kim Driscoll. You've been running, as you remind us, you, I think you were the first to announce for the race. Um, I 
it, it suggested that yes. news took a little while to migrate to Western Massachusetts, but you have been in this for a long time, and you have been crisscrossing the state, as you've pointed out. I'm wondering what the state of the race is from your perspective. Where, where does this stand? And if you could comment uh, on this, I think, uh, continuing problem of having the primary, which in effect is going to select the next lieutenant governor, in my opinion, because the Democrats are going to win this race, uh, and the uh, attorney general is going to become the governor. All that having been said, the election, the primary, is the day after Labor Day. It's an insane time, in my opinion, to have an election. But if you could comment on all of that in the last minute or two, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So as you pointed out, you know, most folks are not paying attention yet or they don't know, uh, haven't decided who they're voting for yet. It's upwards of, you know, around the 60 percent or so. Um, so that gives us still tremendous opportunity to uh, reach voters and to talk to voters about who we are and how I will be a different type of lieutenant governor. Could you stop there for one second? I don't mean to interrupt, but 60, that's polling. I didn't know that's polling shows that's 60, polling. Yeah, 60% kind of, don't know, haven't decided up in the air. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's, I, but people will start paying attention, I think, you know, soon. Um, and what those polls do show that we are in a statistical tie. Uh, so we feel really great about that. Every milestone that, um, you know, in this race and in this campaign, we have exceeded expectations coming in second at the at the Democratic Convention, um, you know, getting the endorsement of the Massachusetts Teachers Association and Progressive Mass and Our Revolution. Uh, we are the only campaign in this race who has, uh, you know, gotten the endorsement of three statewide organizations, as well as a New England based one, the Chinese American Alliance. So we feel really great about the message and how it's reaching people. Um, and we're truly grassroots. You know, when we went out to collect our signatures to get on the ballot, we collected 14,000 signatures. We did that just with volunteers, 250 volunteers. The other candidates in this race cannot say the same thing. Um, and that's really exciting for us. So that says that we have that statewide kind of support that's needed to be able to win in this race. I will say that, uh, you know, with the with the primary being the day after election, early voting by mail does begin soon. Um, so that will hopefully also help people start to pay attention. And we need people to still show up at the polls. We still need people to vote. We can't assume that uh, the Democrats will reclaim the corner office. If you are a Democrat or if you are left leaning and you don't want to see um, a Republican administration, we need you to get out and vote. And we need you to tell other folks to vote as well. On that, po on that positive note, we will leave it. We've been speaking with State Representative Tammy Govea. She is a candidate for lieutenant governor, Democratic candidate for lieutenant governor. I hope you'll be back with us during the rest of this campaign. Representative, we really appreciate your time this morning and your insights, and thank you for being with us. Thank you for having us again. Appreciate it. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The 100-year-old Helen E. James School Building in Williamsburg is no longer standing. The building was demolished yesterday. In 2021, the town voted to demolish the school and construct a new public safety complex on the grounds after a study found it would have cost several million more dollars to preserve the building. The school was built in 1914 and named after the 19th century philanthropist. It served as a public high school until 1971 and an elementary school until 2014. 
There is a new community social worker in East Hampton who will focus on helping the town recover from the trials of the COVID-19 pandemic. The East Hampton Health Department made the hire, setting a community in Central Mass who successfully implemented a similar role. Elizabeth Plouffe was hired to focus on outreach, education, referrals, substance use, and mental health in the city. Residents will be able to participate in a survey from the health department on where to focus attention first. That will be posted on the town website as soon as it's ready. And a Greenfield man is headed to prison after being sentenced to 20 years for receiving child pornography. Charles Fox admitted to coercing a minor from the Philippines to send photos. Judge Mark Mastroianni sentenced Fox to serve 20 years, followed by 10 years of probation. Before his arrest in 2019, Fox was already listed as a level 2 sex offender in the Massachusetts Sex Offenders Registry. Partly sunny today with a chance for an isolated shower in the afternoon. Highs in the low to mid-80s. An early shower possible tonight, otherwise mostly clear. Friday is looking very nice with mostly sunny skies and temperatures in the 80s. I'm Nick Oresco on 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. La inflación de Estados Unidos subió a un nuevo máximo de cuatro décadas en junio debido al aumento de los precios de la gasolina, los alimentos y el alquiler, lo que redujo los presupuestos familiares y presionó a la Reserva Federal para que aumente las tasas de interés agresivamente, tendencias que aumentan el riesgo de una recesión. Los afroamericanos e hispanoamericanos de bajos ingresos se han visto especialmente afectados, ya que una parte desproporcionada de sus ingresos se destina a elementos esenciales como el transporte, la vivienda y la alimentación. Pero con el costo de muchos bienes y servicios aumentando más rápido que los ingresos promedio, la gran mayoría de los estadounidenses están sintiendo la presión en sus rutinas diarias. A medida que disminuye la confianza de los consumidores en la economía, también lo hacen los índices de aprobación del presidente Joe Biden, lo que representa una gran amenaza política para los demócratas en las elecciones legislativas de noviembre. En otras informaciones, el alcalde de Holyoke, Joshua García, dijo que no está de acuerdo con la solicitud de los funcionarios estatales de eliminar gradualmente las reglas de contratación ordenadas por la Corte destinadas a diversificar los departamentos de policía y bomberos de la ciudad. El decreto de consentimiento de aproximadamente 50 años todavía rige la contratación de policías o bomberos en Holyoke y otras cinco comunidades de Massachusetts. Deben seguir las reglas hasta que la demografía de los oficiales o bomberos de nivel inicial refleje las comunidades a las que sirven. Sin embargo, en Holyoke, el porcentaje de oficiales y bomberos negros y latinos se mantiene muy por debajo de la población de la ciudad, que es más del 54% hispana según el censo. Yo soy Johan Rechivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Space, the final frontier. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to this special edition of Salman Hamid's Universe. Salman Hamid is a professor at Hampshire College and an astronomer. He is with us on a regular basis, and he is with us this morning because I want to know more about those amazing, totally amazing images coming from the James Webb Space Telescope a million miles from the Earth, taking photographs, well, not exactly photographs, but finding images from very deep space. Professor, tell us, what are we seeing? What are these images that are just so mind-blowing, so beautiful? 
What, what are they? Uh, thank you, Bill. And I think it, these images have already impacted you because uh, you called it uh, Salman Hamid's universe. And you dropped ridiculously large and largely ridiculous universe. <laughs> because the obvious need not be restated. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so it's not just one image. Uh, so what the James Webb Space Telescope, and again, uh, for people who need a reminder, uh, it's been 25 years of, uh, in the making. Uh, incredible work, uh, $10 billion into it, many times delayed. But ultimately, the results the first results uh, got released on uh, July, well, in theory, July 12th, but uh, as it turns out, President Biden jumped the gun and he released one image on July 11th. And I was talking to Monty, like, you know, it's, that's that's one way of increasing you know, your bipartisan rating because like, you know, that is one thing that everybody can, well, more, almost everybody can agree on that these are, uh, are amazing. So, uh, so th there are five results. And so let me, um, figure out how to think about it. So the first one, the one that uh, President Biden released, and that was of a cluster of galaxies. Now, and so it's it's called SMACS, uh, which is basically a, a nickname, uh, an acronym for Southern Massive Cluster Survey. Uh, but it's, uh, it's a cluster of galaxies that is about roughly four and a half billion light years away. And what you are looking at, I mean, it's a beautiful image. Of course, we are on the radio, uh, and so people have to see it on their own, or they must have seen it. Uh, We're so, showing everybody so, on the radio what it looks like in infrared. <laughs> there you go. So you have this uh, cluster of, of, of galaxies, and that's about four and a half billion light years away, meaning to say light started its journey when the Earth and the Sun had just formed. And you go like, well, that's really far away. Well, except there is a lot more universe behind it as well, meaning to say there are a lot of objects behind it. So the significance of that is that that cluster of galaxies, as we learned from Einstein, that anything with a mass can bend space and can also bend light. And so what happens is that there are objects that are behind these cluster and their light gets bent and just like a, you have a regular glass lens, when light gets bent, it can be magnified. In the same way, this cluster of galaxies acts as a magnifying glass, magnifying galaxies that are much, much, much farther away. So this was the image, and, and those gra it's called gravitational lensing. And with these little tiny galaxies, when they get their images get magnified, you have, to, you have to have the ability to see them. Hubble Space Telescope from space could see them. It had observed the same galaxy cluster before, but it was predominantly in the visible light. And Hubble Space Telescope was much smaller than James Webb Telescope. And the image from James Webb Telescope is just incredible. It could you could see sort of like you know first of all if you just do the comparison because that's what this these set of images are just a comparison. Hey, look, I've got a new toy. What was before and what is now? I mean, this is just the beginning. But even in that image, you are seeing probably a thousand galaxies or so. Every little smudge, with a few exceptions, are galaxies. And some of those galaxies, and that's what they found, they like is coming from like you know 13.1 billion 
years. Uh, like meaning to say the light started 13 billion years ago and the light is just getting to us. So that was what's incredible about it because it was very easy for James Webb Telescope to see this. So this is all expressed scientifically, as I understand it, in, in exponents. So many light years to the X power of something. But we're talking about light traveling at, what, 186,000 miles a second, something like that? That's and right. how far light will travel, 186,000 miles per second times 13.1 billion years? That's what we're talking about? That's the distance involved here? And that was one of the smudges. There's a little red smudge that is there. And what James Webb Space Telescope can also do, and I think that was actually the really cool part. I mean, the image is very nice, wonderful. But there is also spectra, meaning to say that astronomers, uh, so James Webb Space Telescope has the ability to break down light, just like a prism uh, breaks light into different colors. In the same way, James Webb Space Telescope can do that. And that can provide information about what kind of elements are there in a galaxy, say, for example, 13 billion light years away. And this was, this used to be, even with the Hubble, a very, very hard problem. Like, you know, you would have really faint, maybe you could detect hydrogen and it would be barely hydrogen. And by the way, the exposure times for Hubble Space Telescope for the same image it took two weeks for James Webb Space Telescope. This image, which is deeper than Hubble, it took it 12 hours. Okay, and it also had this information about what kind of elements there are, which was interesting because, so for example, this galaxy, one of the farthest ones in this image so far, 13.1 billion light years away, it has hydrogen, but it also has some neon and some oxygen in there, which means that already, this is a few hundred million years after the Big Bang, already elements have processed inside other stars. This type of information is phenomenal because now you can, first of all, detect probably, I mean, with James Webb Space Telescope, we are going to see hundreds of thousands of galaxies that far away. And then we'll be able to see, for example, what kind of elements are in there and really to push the limits, where was the first generation of stars that only had hydrogen and helium? Maybe, maybe we'll be able to detect those galaxies as well. Can you stop there for one second? The Milky Way is a galaxy. It has, I can't imagine how many stars and planets in it. And you're talking about hundreds of thousands of galaxies? That's, what, that's what's out there? Thousands? No, 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 no. Way more than that. I'm talking about, okay, so hold on. I'm talking about hundreds of thousands of galaxies that James Webb Space Telescope is going to detect at that distance. Oh, In general, yes, there are hundreds of billions of galaxies. Hundreds of billions of galaxies. Newman, the picture that Salman is describing that has been described to me is if you were is to it, take a grain of sand at arm's length, there's a thousand galaxies in that one grain of sand that James Webb and Hubble both looked at. Each a thousand galaxies, each galaxy with billions of stars in it. 
Wow. And, 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 and far more planets that you will have probably a trillion planets like in the Milky Way. And so, yeah, so the number of planets goes even higher. So, yeah, yeah. No, let's not focus on those numbers because that is really ridiculously large. I know, <laughs> I, I, know, I, know, I, know I know, but it, but it does remind me of that wonderful poster from back in my youth with a picture of Earth out wherever it is in the Milky Way with the, with the arrow and the, and, the, uh, and the message, you are not alone. I mean, right. I mean, it it does. These numbers do really suggest strongly that there has to be not only life, but uh, intelligent and very uh, interesting life elsewhere. It doesn't I mean? Isn't that part of this story? Oh, I, absolutely. But the when we talk about search for life in the universe, we actually usually talk about just the Milky Way, and also within the Milky Way, close by. Because otherwise the distances are so huge that like, you know, I mean, the likelihood that we are the only life form or we are the only intelligent life form, however we define it, because it's unclear whether intelligence is here or not. Uh, I mean, it, that's just like, you know, a, a given that that would be the case. I mean, of course, we don't have any evidence for that. But look at the probabilities. So that I think would be a very uh, uh, sort of like, you know, human centric or our own life centric view. Uh, but the universe is huge. Salman, I want to go back to something you were you're talking about, which is the images themselves, because the James Webb Space Telescope is, as I understand it, uh, accumulating images through the infrared spectrum, right? And then that's being translated, since we can't see an infrared, into a uh, visual uh, arena that we can see. So explain that process for us. What is the telescope getting and then what is that being translated into so that we can see it right so, so it's deliberate <laughs> hubble space telescope will work predominantly in the visible light it had a little bit of infrared and a little bit of ultraviolet but james webb space telescope is all in the infrared and it is designed because that is one of the ways that it can see galaxies even farther than hubble and that is because of the expanding universe the light gets shifted towards the red so some of the faintest uh, or some of the farthest galaxies, their light has been what we call redshifted enough that they're no longer in the visible light, but their peak brightness, the most bright they are, that is in the infrared. So this is one of the reasons why James uh, Webb Space Telescope, it's one of the primary missions is to look at some of these first galaxies that formed after the Big Bang. Okay. But now you have a second question, which is a much bigger and philosophical question of what we are seeing, <laughs> because so this is in the infrared. I, I regularly confuse myself, Salman. This is just, just, just... <laughs> so uh, it's in the infrared. Our eyes do not see in the infrared. Uh, only uh, Jody from Star Trek: The Next Generation he had that visor yeah. that could see it, uh, but we can't. Uh, so what it does is. It, what the detector does, it just detects light, whatever the detector is, if it's in the infrared, and the photons come in, light comes in, and then it transfers it into basically electrons, and it forms an image. Now, you would say, yeah, but this is infrared, and we are seeing it visible light. How did it convert? It just, we just code it. We say, okay, well, near infrared, for example, certain microns give it a color yellow or red or whatever. But here is something I would say to confuse you further. Even when images come in from Hubble Space Telescope, which is in the visible light, 
Well, it's the same process because you have a detector. It's just that, that I mean, the detector is just electrons passing through, right? Elect light hits it and then electrons char uh, go through. We assign, humans assign value to it. Now, when it's a visible light detector, we say, well, you know, it's close to well, potentially what your eyes would see. But in some sense, we are also translating what is coming as light photons through an electronic system to giving us that image. Now, in this case, the same thing is happening, except this time uh, the detector is in the infrared and we say, you know, we've converted it into visible light, but normally we won't see that. I hope I've confused you. Yeah. Well, one last question before we take a break. Yeah. The color that we're seeing are colors that we've assigned to them, uh, or they are if we could actually see them with our eyes, understanding how impossible that is, this is something that, like the color that we might see. I guess that's my inarticulate question. Oh, that's a, no, that's a great question. Uh, so, of course, we do not see the infrared, but this is if we had infrared eyes this is how we would see those structures but we are still defining and we as humans we are still defining the way those filters are right now translating like the exact colors right i mean so those are in the visible light those are visible colors infrared doesn't have those colors so it's a little tricky on how to talk about it Right, because we are still assigning visible light colors. So the question is, in the infrared, this is the kind of structures you would see, but the actual color, what you see in the image, well, that would be different because that's the value that we assign in the visible light. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more of Salman Hamid. We're going to have a quiz for all you listeners right <laughs> on the other side of the break. I feel like I almost <laughs> get it. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Voting as well as early voting is the way to go. It shows that we trust the voters. They know why they need an early ballot. They know why they need an absentee ballot. It's not up to government to decide if it's a legitimate reason or not. The voters should get to choose. So this, I think, is a huge advance. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Martha Graham, Mum and Chance, Blind Boys, Cherish the Ladies, Peking Acrobats, Ukraine Philharmonic, Nikki, and Stomp, all on their way to the UMass Fine Arts Center. Mum and Chance in their 50th year, Cherish the Ladies, A Celtic Christmas, the Martha Graham Dance Company with the Lost Graham Masterwork Canticle for Innocent Comedians. Snarky Puppy unleashes their ferocious improvisation. Nikki shines a ray of pop sunshine. And Gina Chavez blends the sound of the Americas with tension and grace. Dance, classical, jazz, theater, plus performances you just can't categorize. Stomp arrives for three performances. Head-turning trumpeter Sean Jones leads his quartet on stage, plus visits the UMass High School Jazz Festival. Plan now for a season of uplifting arts performances. Go to the UMass Fine Arts Center website for the full calendar and tickets. 
Hi, I'm Missy Tatro, Assistant Vice President and Senior Mortgage Originator at Greenfield Cooperative Bank and its Northampton Co-op Bank Division. And I'm Mortgage Originator Kimberly Gates. If you're looking to buy a home, now's the perfect time to save on your Greenfield Co-op mortgage. That's right. We can save you up to $1,000 on your mortgage closing costs. Don't miss the opportunity to receive a $750 closing credit plus another $250 when we pre-qualify you. Chat with one of our experienced mortgage originators at any of our Hampshire and Franklin County locations to get started. Or if you're ready, visit our new website at bestlocalbank.com and start your application online. So come on over to the co-op and see me, Kimberly Gates, or me, Missy Tatro, and save up to $1,000 on your closing costs. Close by September 30th. Be a first-time mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $1,000 loan, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. At PV Squared Solar, we live by our mission, energizing a brighter future for people and planet. This year, we are celebrating our 20th anniversary. 20 years of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar. 20 years of relationships founded on trust and clean energy. 20 years of powerful cooperation. Thank you for the partnerships along the way, and we look forward to serving this community for 20 years more. Happy birthday, PV Squared! Learn more at pvsquared.coop. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. So, dear listeners, we are going to come back with Salman Hamid soon, and we're going to have him explain to you infrared and the entire light spectrum, and it's really, really fascinating. I think I figured it out on the break. <laughs> or we're going to have Salman or Monty, one or the other, to explain this all to us. But that said, you really want to talk about exoplanets, so tell us about that. Right. So there were other beautiful results, including uh, Bill, you were showing me a newspaper and asking what this is. And I, I think I guessed it right. I said it was a newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess you wanted to show that that main picture was of Carina Nebula taken from James Webb Space Telescope. It's a beautiful image. No question about it. Everybody, most people would argue it's beautiful. There are other images. There is an image of a cluster of galaxies called, uh, a group of galaxies called uh, Stefan's Quintet. Great people should look at it. There was another star that is dying, star like ours, like you know, which is uh, the Southern Ring Nebula. That's great. But what I want to talk about is this underappreciated. I think uh, it didn't get any headlines because it was not associated with a pretty picture, and that was uh, the spectrum of uh, the uh, information about the atmosphere of an exoplanet. And okay. exoplanets are those planets that are orbiting around other stars. This particular one is called WASP 96b. And it's about 1,100 light years from us. It orbits around a sun-like star. So far, we as humans have detected over 5,000 exoplanets. So that's amazing. We have a lot of uh, data regarding that. But it is incredible art, even with the biggest telescope, even with James Webb Space Telescope, an exoplanet, you would not see it beyond a dot. And if you are lucky, if you can see a dot. So it has been a real uh, sort of effort to figure out information about these exoplanets, potentially by looking at their atmospheres. This is very hard to do. And astronomers can do that when an exoplanet goes in front of its star 
So the light in, in front, meaning star, to, on, on, on the Earth side of the star. Between us, right, yeah. So it's like an eclipse. It's a very tiny eclipse. That's, in fact, how we detect these exoplanets, by looking at these tiny dips in the light of a star. But when it dips, when the starlight goes through the atmosphere, you can actually figure out, if you have the right telescope, what kind of molecules in the atmosphere of the planet is absorbing light. And we can actually detect those. This is a very, very hard problem. Again, handful of exoplanets, uh, like you know, with the Hubble Space Telescope, we had detected the atmosphere. Very little. James Webb Space Telescope looked at this exoplanet. This is a, a not sort of like one of those potential habitable exoplanets. This is a Jupiter-sized planet orbiting very close to its star. It takes only three and a half days to go around once, and it detected. Uh, and we knew that it doesn't have a thick atmosphere like Jupiter, but what it detected is water vapor. There are and if there's water, if there's water, the assumption is or the guess is there's life. Not on this one. This is just a cloud because it's very close to its star. It's about a thousand degrees, uh, about eighteen hundred degrees Fahrenheit. Its temperature, so it's very hot. But this was an amazing demonstration, and now James Webb Space Telescope can look at other exoplanets where there might be life. We won't directly detect life, but maybe biosignatures, like maybe extra oxygen and stuff like that. It will take some time, but I think that was a beautiful result. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Salman Hamid, who is a Hampshire College professor and astronomer, and this has been Salman Hamid's Ridiculously Large and Largely Ridiculous Universe, which we are going to continue in coming shows because this is just fascinating stuff. Thank you, Salman. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much, and this is just the beginning. 30,000 light years from galactic central point. We go round every 200 million years. And our galaxy is only one of millions of billions. It is amazing and expensive. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160. The Food Bank of Western Massachusetts provides healthy food to families and individuals facing hunger in our region. And right now, with food insecurity the highest it's been in recent years, the Food Bank is distributing more emergency food than ever. Learn more about the Food Bank or get support for yourself and your family. Go to foodbankwma.org or call 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors have enough to eat and leading the community to end The only hunger. live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10